Good morning, church. I trust that your heart is grateful to be here this morning. I know mine is grateful to gather with the church. It is the Lord's day as it's been referred to throughout history. We know every day belongs to him, but it's the Lord's day. And so we set it aside to gather with the saints in Christ and worship our God together. Let's have a few quick comments as we get started. Um, as Pastor Doug already mentioned, there is a meeting next Sunday for all the children's ministry workers. Um, if you serve with kids, it's not optional. Don't just skip it, okay? We've got a lot of good things we're going to be covering and training uh, just as we try to serve the next generation well here. So if you are interested in serving with kids, you're welcome to come and sit in on that. Um, unless you're in the new members class, then you have to be at that, okay? Uh, that's next week. You'll notice when you leave the auditorium doors, the, the, side, the new side is open. We open those doors. There's nothing over there, but you're welcome over there. All right, so the lobby gets kind of crammed. So now you can just go over there and talk, okay? You can take your coffee over there and just kind of meander that way. Um, so feel free to spread out in that side of the building. Uh, the elders are having conversations about what to do with that side. So it's not gonna stay a blank room forever, uh, but we are free to use it. So those doors are open, you don't need to close them, and you can go in there and fellowship afterwards, especially on these bitter cold days that we have in California. Um, <laughs> So you're welcome to go over there. Um, and, then sec and then lastly, as uh, Pastor Phil already mentioned, we just want to make mention today of Dr. Martin Luther King as it is MLK weekend. Um, and I just have two things I want to share this morning as before we turn to God's word. One is that we should rejoice and give honor to where it's due. And God raises up people for certain times. And Dr. Martin Luther King was definitely one of those men. He raised him up to do something that nobody was willing to do. Um, and, and I hope you read history. Don't just listen to what people say, but read it. It's fascinating uh, how he stood against just the onslaught of culture and society because he actually believed scripture. Um, and that's my second point is that we need to be Bible saturated people. We're not just into political reform. We're into the Bible. But if the Bible calls for political reform, then guess what? We stand with this book. And so we stand, even as was already prayed, we are one people under God. And we are, as believers, we are united in Jesus, which even gives our unity greater strength. And so we want to hold on to that, even today, that we say, you know, we stand for truth and we stand for what is right, uh, because we are one people created by God and loved by God and that one people that Jesus died for. Um, and so we stand together in that as a church and, uh, and we should. And so this weekend, um, political reform is necessary and needed even today. And I think we'd all agree on that, but know that the greatest hope for mankind is the gospel. And really political reform will come as people die to their sin and believe the gospel. And then political reform happens because Jesus changes their heart. So we want to just make mention of that this morning and give honor to where honor is due. If you have a copy of God's word, and I hope you do, let's go to Psalm 119. It's been a month since we've been in Psalm 119, which for some of you, you're like, whew, had a break. Uh, and maybe there's a few of you that missed it. I missed it. And so we're going to dive back in this morning. You'll notice behind me and on your notes, knowing, delighting, transforming. That's been our theme and will be that we need to know God. We need to have a, not just a intellectualism or a religiosity, like I grew up hearing that in Sunday school, but like I know God and I know him from his word. And then as we know him, 
right? We delight in him because nothing is, del- is as delightful as God. There's nothing as infinitely lovely, nothing as wonderful as God. And so we know him, we delight in him. And then the point of Psalm 119 is this, be transformed. Don't stay the same. There is no such thing as a Christianity that leaves you the same. It always changes you. And for some of us, that's hard because we we kind of like the comfortable American Christian message. Come as you are, stay as you are, and you'll be happy. No, no, that's not true. It's come as you are, and you'll be gloriously transformed by God. So we know him, we delight in him, and we're transformed into the image of the sun. And so what I've done in my Bible is each week we have a, a theme, if you will, a major idea. So I write them down in the margin of my Bible. So we've looked at things like this. We cry out to God because we need God's help to know God. That was the third section of this Psalm where the psalmist said, open my eyes that I would behold wondrous things out of your law. And we saw truth like when sorrow clings to you, cling to the God of the word by grace because life stinks. Heaven is not until later. We don't get heaven now and heaven later. All right, we get heaven later. So the reality is life just stinks. You know, you know why we get sick? To remind us that heaven's coming. Like it's a God-given, it's a God-given design that you and I would look forward to heaven. So we hate being sick because we want heaven now. Now we would be weird if we were like, yeah, get sick. I'm so excited. But the reality is we get sick and we go, I'm so glad heaven's coming because I'm tired of this body. I'm tired of this earth. I'm ready to be with my savior. We saw things like in verse nine to 16, treasure the word of God because it produces conformity to the God of the word. Treasure the word because when you treasure the word, you, you conform to the God of the word. And so we have seen these great truths and many others in Psalm 119. And today we're back in the sixth stanza, if you will, of this poem, starting in verse 41. And what we're going to see today is that what we trust in, we live for. What we trust in, we live for. Let me just kind of meander with you a little bit this morning as we get started. Money. A lot of us trust in money. It's the American way. So it might look like this. You're just really unhappy because you don't have the job you want. But really it's not the job you want. It's that the job you have doesn't provide for you like like you want. And so you want a different job because you really think that if you had a little more money, you'd be a little bit happier. We're holding on to this trusting in what I can get. And so you're just kind of miserable. You know, you just... You're just, you hate your job. It's, a, it's just the biggest drag of your life. Now, for some of us, we have bad bosses. We have bad work environments. I get it. But often it just comes down to, I just wish I had more. And I don't have more. And for whatever reason, God, so see, we blame God a little bit. God's not giving me more. Everybody else has more, so we lie to ourselves. And then we really hold on to this fact that, that money will make us happy and we trust in it and we chase it and we pursue it. Now, money's not evil, but the love of it is. And so it's good for our own hearts to see that, that, you know, I do trust in money. And I think that if I just had a little bit more, life would be a little bit better. Well, maybe money for you isn't the issue. 
maybe, maybe beauty is the issue. Now, for some of us, beauty is not a problem um, because we just have resigned that it's never going to happen. All right? But for some of you, beauty is where you go to. Your self-image is everything. You, you read the articles, you know, uh, you know the psychology of it, and you just you fill your mind with what your view of beauty is. And you're convinced that if you get there, you'll be happy. I mean, just a little bit thinner. Just a little bit, and I'll be better. Just if I had a little bit more hair in these bald spots. Like, if I, just, if I had that, I would just be a little bit happier. If I just, and you just fill in the blank with, with I've, I've got this standard of beauty, and I don't match up. And I just think that if I had that, I would be better. And so we trust in beauty and then we live for beauty. And then I'm going to pick on another one. Maybe for you, it's not beauty. It's just being really fit, just really in shape. And so you're like, man, I just, I don't care about how I look, but I want to, I want to be able to run or lift or ride or whatever the case might be. I'm going to be fit till I die, which you're not going to be by the way. Because your body's going to go to the grave like everybody else's. So you're, you're, we, but we live at this idol of fitness. And it's what we trust in. It's what we trust in to make us happy. You know, like, like you don't get that, that fitness goal you wanted. And so you're upset. Because it's what you're trusting in. And it's ever elusive. There's always a little bit more. But I could trust in it to make me happy. Now, for some of you, that's just so far out there because you hold on to this other one. You hold on to the idol of comfort. Comfort's where you go. You trust in comfort. Just comfortability. So whatever is going to cause me discomfort, I don't want it. Whether that's food I don't enjoy, getting up early, going for a run, it doesn't matter. If it's uncomfortable, I don't want it because I really, at the end of the day, trust in comfort. So I work to stay comfortable. And if I don't want to do it, if it doesn't make me comfortable, I don't do it. Because life exists for me to be comfortable. Are you seeing this? What we trust in, we live for. If I trust in comfort to make me happy, then I will do whatever it takes to stay comfortable. If I trust in fitness or beauty to make me happy, I'll do whatever it takes because it's what I trust in. But then there's this last one that's for some of us, where we live, we trust in the idea of relationships to make us happy. So we hold on to the idyllic relationship. So maybe, maybe you're not married and you want to be. And you hold out for the ideal relationship because you'll be happy. Maybe you're married, you're married, but your marriage isn't as good as you want it to be. So you hold out for the ideal marriage. Like one day, Prince Charming will show up. Probably not. But one day, you know what? My marriage will get better. We have this relationship that we hold out for. Or maybe it's just peers. It's just people. If, if I have this circle of friends and they approve of me, then I am happy because it's what I trust in. Maybe it's work relationships. If I keep these executives happy, I'm okay. Because what we trust in, we live for. And this could go on and on. You fill in the blank. What do you trust in? And you're like, oh, Pastor Justin, I trust in God. Okay, let me ask you a better question. What do you live for? Because what you live for proves what you trust in. Okay, do you get that? What you live for proves 
what you trust in. And Psalm 119, 41 to 48 is going to take us right to that issue. And he's going to drive it home and say, what you live for is what you trust in. So let's read these verses together, even though they've already been read this morning. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings." and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. When you trust God, you'll live for God. When you trust God, you will live for God. Let's pray once again. Psalm 119, 133 says these words, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. We desire that this morning, Father. We sang, show us Christ. Where else can we go, O Lord? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Show us Christ. Teach us your statutes that we may keep it to the end. And in Christ's name, Amen. So the first thing we see here in these three verses is that trust changes everything. Trust changes everything. Now, trust is really easy to understand. Trust is, is like when, when that child jumps off the counter towards their parents, even if the parents aren't looking. They just have total trust that even if you don't see me, you will catch me because I trust you. You've never given me a reason to doubt you. So I trust you. We, we don't do that well as adults. We grow cynical in our old age. We've been burned. And so therefore we don't trust. But trust really is the idea that you've never failed me. You never will. And I will cast myself entirely on you. So that's what I mean by the word trust. And we see here that when you trust, it changes everything. Look at verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation, according to your promise. The first thing we see is that because we trust, you run to God for abundant or lavish grace. Because you trust him, you run to him for grace. And as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, you run to him for grace because you've been doing it for years. It's how your walk with God started. You ran to him for grace. You didn't run to him and say, oh God, yeah, help me out. I'm having a, I mean, I'm a pretty good guy and, you know, help me out. You ran to him and said, Lord, I'm broken. I don't know what to do. Like, I, I, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. You cried out for grace. It's how your relationship with God began. And here, it's, we see it's how it continues. As a child of God, you continually run to him because you're in constant need of grace. Does anybody have it all together this morning? You know the lie that so, is so often common in American Christianity? Come to church and look like you have it all together. What a farce. I mean, 
your week had problems. My week had problems. Your family has problems. My family has problems. Your marriage has problems. So does mine because my wife married a sinner. So she stuck with that. Right? I mean, it's just, you go down the list. Yeah, I've got problems. I need grace. We don't come as a people who we have it all together with this perfect picture of like, oh yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. No, why don't we try to be honest and say, actually, I just need grace. I don't have it all together. So we run to the God who does. And we desperately need him. So here the psalmist starts off with, let your steadfast love come to me. This is a plea for grace. That steadfast love is covenant loyalty. The idea here is the God of the Bible is faithful regardless of you. That's the request. God, be faithful to me in spite of me. Let your steadfast love, your covenant faithfulness come to me. Psalm 69, 16. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. You know what you never see in the Bible? You never see God be good to me because I'm awesome. It's just not there. You see, be good to me. Answer me. Because of your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your covenant loyalty, according to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Isn't that good news for us this morning? Like we run to this God and we say, Lord, because of who you are, be good to me. I I may have a great week. I may have a horrid week. doesn't matter. God, I'm going to run to you and be good to me. I need your grace. Listen to Exodus 34. This is where Moses had the audacity to ask, God, I want to see your face. All right. I mean, what a cool place to be in where you're talking with God and he's just like, God, I want to see you. It's a pretty normal request. I think look at what God says. Exodus 34, six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed this. Remember he put him in that cleft of a rock and he covered his face. And the Lord said this, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses, you want to know me? Know this, that I am good to you and I will always be good. I am a covenant faithful God. Moses, you don't need to see me. You need to know me. It's not seeing me that will change you. It's knowing who I am. And what was, what was that one thing that he said you need to know? I'm a God full of covenant faithfulness. And this is just fascinating because Moses is going to go back down the mountain and run into really unfaithful people. And God said, I'm faithful. I will always be faithful to you. I am a God of steadfast love. And so we run to this God of lavish grace, abundant mercy. I mean, look at what he says in verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, your salvation. Like he just magnifies it. He ups the ante. You're faithful. You give me grace and you save me. It's what you do. It's who you are. You save me. And then we see trust. Remember this, this whole point is underneath the banner of trust. According to your promise. Do you see that there? He has implicit trust in God. Why? Because God has promised and God will do it. This sounds very similar to Hebrews 11. Flip over there real quick. Hebrews 11 verses one to three is a great 
exposition of what faith is. And we don't have time to go through all of Hebrews 11 and and analyze this, but just Hebrews 11 verse one. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, why verse three is so interesting is that by faith, we know the universe is created. How did the writer of Hebrews know the universe was created? Well, he read Genesis one and he, from reading Genesis one, he concluded by faith, God, you created everything. So isn't that what we do today? We read the scriptures and we say, well, God, you did this or you will do this because I've read it and your word is true. I don't have to question it. I don't have to ask God to prove it. I don't have to have some experience that backs it up. I can simply say, God, your word is true. I can take it to the bank every time. You are a faithful God. You will be faithful to your word. And so we have this confidence, this conviction, this assurance of things hoped for. Why? Because it's been revealed by God in his word. And we are people of great confidence in our faith. And so the psalmist says, according to your promise, we know who God is and we know what God will do from the word of God. Did you catch that? We know who he is and we know what he will do from this book. It's why we go to it all the time, not just in our corporate worship services, but I hope in your life, you go to this book to know God And say, God, I want to know you and I want to know what you're going to do because you tell me in this book all that I need for life and godliness. So we go to this book and we run to God for lavish grace and we say, God, according to your promise, be faithful to me. God, according to your steadfast love, work on my behalf. So we know from this book things like we are a broken people and God is not. And so we can run to him. We know that we are unrighteous people, but God is righteous. We know that we are frail and but dust, but that he never changes. And so we can run to him for strength and for endurance and grace. And so here we run to God because we trust him. Like that child jumping off the countertop, we run to God. We don't have to ask for an audience. We don't have to take a number like you're at the DMV. You just go to him and say, Lord, I desperately need your mercy and your salvation according to your sure promise. Let's go on. Verse 42, because you trust, you endure. Here he says, then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me for I trust in your word. The word for taunt is the word for annoy. I'm going to have a word. I'm going to have an answer for the people who annoy me. Anybody have annoying people in your life? Maybe, maybe it's annoying because frankly, you're a sinner and so are they. And when sinners get in the same room, you're going to have friction, but maybe they annoy you because they hate your God. And so you just, you feel like you can't say anything. You can't do anything because it always is going to come back to, well, I, I, this is what I believe, or this is how I live. And you're just the odd person out and they annoy you. And he says, I will have an answer for them and I will endure through the the annoyance 
the taunting because I trust in your word. So we see that trust produces endurance even through suffering, even through agony. He says, oh, I will endure. I will endure to the point that God, you'll give me an answer when I just don't feel like I have one. This isn't some smart aleck answer. This isn't some like, ha ha, gotcha moment. This is simply a first Peter. I'll be able to give an answer of the hope that's in me with gentleness and respect because I'm trusting in my God and I'm confident that he will be good to me. You see what he says? Do you hear the confidence in his voice? For I trust in your word. I mean, isn't that what gets shaken when things begin to crumble, when, when we're taunted in life, when people annoy us in life, when everything isn't as hunky-dory as we wished, when just the stars aren't aligning, and maybe they haven't for a long time for you, and you're just like, God, what in the world? Here he says, I'm just going to trust in your word because in it I find you and I know you to be good. And listen to Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? I mean, this is the confidence of the psalmist in his God. For I trust in you. Life is hard. People annoy me. There are people who even hate you who will come after me. I mean, that's true individually, but isn't it true societally? You're told that you can't speak about your God. You can't talk about your faith. You have to walk on eggshells in certain environments because you're a Christian. Nothing's new under the sun. Our society isn't any worse than anybody else before us. We just go back to the scriptures and say, okay, I'm trusting in the word. I'm trusting in God. God's got it under control and I'm going to trust him. You know, if we don't have such confidence in God, like Psalm 119, 42, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. You know, far too often we as Christians feel, feel like a used vacuum salesman. We kind of have that like, oh, I'm kind of embarrassed about what I'm selling here today. You know, do you ever have those, do you ever have those, yeah, do you ever those guys knock on your door and you, you don't really even want to talk to them because who likes talking to salesmen at their door? But you do and you, you don't buy what they're doing, interest, or what they're selling. But at the end of the day, you just feel bad for the guy. You're just like, oh man, I'm glad you're working, but man, that's tough. Who wants to sell that? That is not how we live the Christian life. It's like, man, I got a God who is in charge of the universe. He's revealed himself in his word and I can trust him. And if you don't agree with me, if you don't hold to my beliefs, I'm not gonna be like, oh my goodness, what do I do? It's like, well, God has written it. And here's what he says. And I can love you and disagree with you, but I can have an answer when I'm in agony and suffering because I trust in the promises of of my God. And then he goes on in verse 43. So he's, he's driving kind of the point here that we run to grace and we endure because we trust. And now he's going to say, because you trust, you have hope. Don't take the word utterly out of my mouth for my hope is in your rules. Now quickly, that statement is not one of evangelistic thrust. Don't take the word utterly out of my mouth. I believe that is a statement in the ancient Hebrew culture. Things were passed down orally. 
So he's being told about who his God is. And he says, don't remove your word from my lips. Why? Because I trust in it. Where he's going to actually get later in this section to speaking out for his God. But in this section, this verse, I think he's actually saying, God, I know you by the word that is being spoken to me and the word that is coming out of my lips. Don't take it from me. Because if you take that, I have nothing. Is that how we feel about the word of God? God, if you take this from me, I have nothing to stand on. Like, like Oprah's not going to cut it. Okay. Whatever your favorite self-help message ain't good enough. Your radio station doesn't do it for you. God, if you take this from me, I, I can't go anywhere else. So he says, God, don't take your word from my lips. But look at what he says next. For my hope is in your rules. See, the request to maintain a knowledge of the word is because trust is directly connected to hope. And hope is rooted in the word of God. You know, I started off this morning talking about the things we trust in, money, beauty, fitness, whatever the case may be. Do you know, you know why we trust in those things? Because they give us a glimmer of hope. Everybody wants hope. Everybody will try to find hope in something. What is it for you? What is your hope? You know, I have friends, their hope is in a seven-figure retirement. So they live like misers today. And they save everything they can because when they're 55, they're going to retire with seven figures in the bank. And their hope is wrapped up in that nest egg, if you will. For you, that may not be what it is. But we all find something to hope in. The sad reality is if that hope is anything short of the God of this book, it will leave you wanting. And you will keep chasing something until it gives you a moment of hope, a moment of relief, only for you to realize it didn't work. And so you're going to go to something else to find hope. And so here the psalmist connects perfectly for us. Trusting and hoping go hand in hand. And he says this trust is, is revealed in the word. And therefore my hope is found in the word. And so my question for us this morning is what must we have a steady diet of? The word of God. Because when that diet is removed, you will not have any hope. And so here this morning, I was thinking and wondering what one word would describe your intake of God's word. If your hope is intrinsically connected to the God of this book and trusting the God of this book, how would you describe your diet of this book? Would your diet of this book be one that you said, oh, I can stand confidently in my God. I have a hope in him that no matter what comes, I have hope. And I know that my God is good and my God is faithful. Because if, if that's not your diet, when the trials of life come, you won't hope in God as we've already seen in Psalm 119. You will blame him and you will run from him. You will say, God, why weren't you good to me? God, what did I do to deserve this? You'll be more like Job's wife, not Job. You will want to curse God and die. And here we see that the psalmist comes back to, I trust in your word. 
I hope in your word. And this isn't some whimsical hope. This is the hope of that child leaping off of the counter, knowing he's going to be caught. That's what hope is. It's, it's total confidence. Like, God, you got this. So I can fling myself on you and you'll take care of it. Because I hope in you. So again, we need to dig into our hearts a little bit. Puritan said the hardest work is heart work to get below the surface and dig into your own soul. Cause we don't like doing that. We like drowning out our souls. We like to drown it out with noise and with technology and with information, but just, just for a moment, do heart work. What do you hope in and what do you trust in? And don't give me the standard Jesus. You know, your, 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 your close friends will tell you what you hope and trust in by what makes you happy. Your, your family members will tell you what you trust in by what you go to time and time again when life's not going your way. That's what you hope in. That's what you trust in. And here we see that there is only one sure foundation for hope and trust. And it is the God of this book. And when you trust God, you'll live for God. That's where he's going to take us because it starts with trust. My sons will not jump off the counter to you. And after a while they would, but they're going to jump off the counter to me and who knows what else they'll jump off of because they have trust. They have trust in me. Even if it's misplaced sometimes, even if I'm like, dude, I'm going to drop you. They have trust. So you see, trust dictates your actions. Trust guides your life because what you trust in, what you hope in, that's just the actions flow. And far too often, we're trying to go after the actions without dealing with the trust issue. That we actually at the core don't trust God. We think he will fail us. We don't think his plan is good, his way is best. And so then we're not gonna live for him because this doesn't make sense. Because sometimes the way of God's wisdom is an upside down kingdom, right? It just isn't what this world says makes sense. You're like, really, I'm gonna do it that way? Uh Uh-uh, not working. That's not what I read. That's not what Google said. So I'm gonna go somewhere else, God, good idea, but this book is a little old, so I'm gonna go my own way. But it goes back to if I actually trust God, if I actually have this, this just instinctive confidence in God, well, then my life's gonna be transformed for the glory of God. And so when we trust him, we will live for him. And so we've talked about trust and I'm going to change the verb a little bit. We're going to talk about how hope dictates your actions. So trust changes everything. When you trust God, you'll live for him. We're going to use the word hope now because he brings in hope in verse 43. And the Christian life is one of hope. Remember I quoted first Peter, be ready to give an answer of what? The hope that's in you. There there should not be such thing as a hopeless Christian. Because you have hope, right? Now your life may be terrible. I mean, you may have a Job 1 existence and a Job 2 existence and a Job 3 to 38 existence. And you're just like, oh, man, why why do my deck of cards look so bad? I don't know. 
God didn't give us that answer, but he gave us hope in Jesus, right? So we say, I have a savior who died for me and a God who loves me. And there is every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus has been given to me already according to Ephesians 1. So I have hope. Hope is not circumstantial. Hope is a steadfast confidence in God. And so we want to talk about how hope will dictate your life. What you hope in will dictate your life. Look at the last four verses, 44 and following. And in your Bible, you probably have four or five I will statements. He says, trust and hope. And then look at where he goes. I will keep, I will walk, I will seek, I will speak, I will delight, I love, I lift my hands. He's going to say, trust and hope. And then the life actions of life will flow right out of it. So let's look at these actions. Because when we're fully convinced that God is good and his plan for our lives are best, we're going to live for him because he is our unchanging hope. Verse 44, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. This is where you see like Jonathan Edwards wrote his resolutions. If you've never read them, go Google them. They're worth reading. He wrote 70, 72 resolutions by the time he was 19 years old. He was 70 resolutions. They're unbelievable and they would be good for us to, to model many of them. Here we see the, res, the resolute conviction of the psalmist. It's actually a statement of striving after perfection. He didn't say, I'm going to get there. He said, God, I'm going to keep your law continually forever and ever. That's not like a, you know, I'm feeling like it today. Today's a good day. I'll walk with God today. It's like, no, no, no. I'm not talking about how I feel. I'm not talking about how next week's going to be. I'm talking about as a resolute commitment of life. God, I want to keep your commandments. I want to walk with you. Why is he so resolved? Well, as I've said before, it only takes to not think to go after your sin. That's all it takes. Just turn your brain off. You will sin. That's it. Satan loves mindlessness. Just, just turn your brain off and surf the web for a while. You'll sin. It's going to happen because it's where we go, right? It's what we do. We turn our brains off. We naturally go after sin. Just turn on the TV and don't think before you turn it on, guard your heart. You'll do something that you'll later on go, ah, oh, probably wasn't best because you just let your mind go and you didn't resolve to walk with God. So it only takes not to sit, not to think to go after our sin. So here we see, I'm resolved to keep your rules, your law. It's never a passive mindset. If you want a passive Christianity, you're not going to find it in the Bible. What you'll find in the Bible is people that let themselves be passive grow in, go into gross failure. And they repent and turn back to the Lord. Paul told Timothy, discipline yourself for godliness. So if you want to walk with God, we've already looked at grace. It's going to be by grace, but it's going to be by discipline. Like, no, I'm not doing that because I love Jesus. Yes, I am doing that because I love Jesus. And so you're going to fight the good fight of faith. You're going to be resolved in your heart to follow after the Lord that you love. It's like Pastor Doug preaching two weeks ago, First uh, Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God that you would be happy. Nope. Even though following God is gloriously happy. This is the will of God that you would never have financial strain and stress in life. 
This is the will of God, that you would be holy, that you will be sanctified. And then he immediately launches into, as Pastor Doug did so well, abstain from sexual immorality. And the list goes on and on. What does that, what does that mean for us? It means that if we're going to walk with God, if we're actually concerned about his will for our lives, it's going to start with a resolve to walk with him. Like I'm going to follow you no matter what. If everybody's doing it, I really don't care. I don't care if I'm just totally ignorant to pop culture because I love Jesus. I don't care if what everybody says is popular, like Game of Thrones. I love Jesus. And so I'm not going to go down that path because I want to walk with God. And there are things that in our society are frankly going to cause you to not walk with God. And so because we love him, we keep his commandments like Daniel. And he is propositioned by Potiphar's wife. And he says, what? Absolutely not. I've resolved in my heart to follow God. I'm running towards him, not towards you. I'm going to keep your commandments because I love you and I'm committed to living for you. So when you trust him, when you hope in him, guess what? You keep his word. This doesn't mean you're never going to fail. It doesn't mean you're never going to struggle, but it means as the direction of your life, your course is set. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to pursue him. I will keep your law. And then the next I will statement is in verse 45. So I will keep, and then he says this, I shall walk in a wide place. Here we see the word of God is followed. That's the idea of walking in the Hebrew mind, like a long walk. You're just walking. You're following the path. He says, so I'm walking in this path. I shall walk. And it's interesting. He says, a wide place. You see, the lie of sin is that it's easier to sin than follow God. Now, is there truth in that lie? Yeah, it's easier. In that moment, it's easier to go after sin than following God. The reality is the sting of sin is the lie because it's going to wreck your life and destroy you. And so there's a moment of truth. This is easy. But really what the psalmist says is I'm going to walk in a wide path. In other words, the path is not hidden. It's not like, oh, I have no idea what to do today. It's like God has revealed his path and it's like a 12 lane highway before you walk in it. It doesn't matter if the lights are out, you can still see it. Walk in it. It's a wide path. It's a good path and I'm going to walk in it. You know, it's interesting, Proverbs chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. See, I think sometimes we believe the lie that it's just, I don't know what to do. I mean, walk, being a Christian is so hard. I mean, I just don't know how to live. I think that's an excuse. Listen to Proverbs 8. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice on the heights beside the way at the crossroad? She takes her stand besides the gates in front of town at the entrance of the portal. She cries to you. Oh man, I call and my cry is to the children of man. Oh, simple ones learn prudence and fools learn sense here for I will speak noble things. And from my lips will come what is right for my mouth will utter truth and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. 
They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold for wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Doesn't sound like God is hiding his way from you. It's like right here. I think we think it's hidden because we never open our Bibles. Just open your Bible and read it. And you'll be like, oh, wow. It's right there. Like God just, he like actually said that. And you know what's so sweet? I love when, when Christians start to grow and they come to me and they say things like that. Did you know that God's word said this? And I'm like, just tell me more. I want to hear it. Because they're doing that and they're realizing, wow, it's been right here all along. I just got to go to the book. And it's like, wow, like I actually know how to live and I have all that I need for life and godliness because God gave it to me right here. And far too often we just slam it shut and we're like, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know how to answer this question or that's just too hard. I don't know why my marriage is on the rocks. I don't know why. And it's like, just open your Bible and read it and by grace, obey it and watch what God does. So he says in verse 40, 45, the, the way is wide. Wisdom is not stumbled on though. Look at what he says in verse 45. I've sought your precepts. This wasn't an accidental stumbling. It was like, God, I sought you. What do you seek after? Like Proverbs 2, 3 to 6, we see again the psalmist or the, the, uh, the, uh, the proverb, the writer of Proverbs saying, verses 3 to 6, Oh, if you call out for it, raise your voice for understanding, seek it like silver, search for it as hidden treasures. Then you'll know the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Like that's our God, but you got to seek him. Sometimes we just seek so many other things. You know, God will convict me at times where, where I begin to seek foolish things. What are the foolish things that tempt you? Like you find yourself reading stupid magazines about things that don't matter just taking up brain, brain bandwidth. You know, it's just like, why am I doing this? This is doing nothing for my soul. Like it doesn't matter at all, at all, ever. What? Satan's okay with that. Just don't go to God. Don't seek him. Now, is it okay to have other pursuits? Sure. But I find that it's so much easier to go everywhere else but this book. Do you ever find that to be true? I can read the dumbest things in the world without distraction. I open my Bible and I'm like, da, right? Distractions are everywhere. Why? Because there's an enemy of God fighting against me going to this book. So we, we say, no, I'm going to go to this book and I'm going to seek God because it's a wide path and I want to know it. Oh, brothers and sisters, the way of the transgressor is hard. That's what the word of God says. Go after your sin a few times and just see how good life gets. I mean, we try to blame it on every, everything else. The end of the day, it's I chose the sin and I made my life pretty terrible. And then I did it again and again and again. The way of the transgressor is hard. And here he says, oh, when I seek you, it's a wide path. It's like where all the brush has been cleared and all the rocks are broomed out of the way. And I'm just able to walk on this path and it's good because the God who made you knows what's best for you. And I can just walk with him. And so he says, I'm going to keep your law. and I'm going to walk in a wide place. Is that not what we all want? You want to know the direction for life. You really want the will of God for your, your, for your life. Just seek him 
and you'll know the wide path, a good path, walking as you trust and hope in him. Look at where he goes then next. He says, I will keep, I will walk. And now he says, I will speak. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. Now we don't know who the author is. As I mentioned months ago, it might've been David. It might've been Daniel. Either way, both spoke before kings. They both had royal court influence all the time. And he said, I'm going to speak about you to the greatest men politically in the world. And I'm going to do it with no shame. How did he get there? Well, because when you trust in something and you hope in something, and it's this confident trust and a confident hope, there's no embarrassment, right? I mean, some of you in here have things that you really believe in. You really believe that a certain makeup product will change your life. Now, if that's the case, I'm so glad it's changed your life. It's not going to change mine. You can't do anything with this, okay? You're just, I'm just stuck with it. But you really believe it. And so you, you're really passionate about it. Like you're really passionate about overpriced lipstick. Hey, that's great. Praise God. You're allowed to be. You don't, you don't cower in a corner and you're like, oh, um, do you, you want some? No, you're like, man, yeah, I'll tell you about it. What do you want to know? You're not ashamed. You're not embarrassed because you believe that it actually works. And so you should. Are you tracking with the psalmist here? He's like, I believe this. I have trust. I have confidence. I have hope. So guess what? I'm going to talk about it. I don't live in the shadow of shame. I don't have to, I don't have to wonder, is, does everybody here agree with me before I open my mouth? It's just, I just, this because I know who God is. He's revealed himself in his word. He's changed my life by his grace. So I speak of him. Now I find that that so often we think about things in the Christian work, Christianity, like, Oh, we have to evangelize. Can we get rid of that language? Just, just live out your Christianity everywhere you go. It's not like I've got a moment in time to do evangelism and okay, I'm done talking about Jesus. I was just like, oh, he's changed me. So if, if I'm out in public and something comes up, I'm going to talk about Jesus. Why? Because he changed me. And if you're going to ask me about, well, who are you? What do you do? Well, it's not really who, what I do. It's who I am. I'm a blood-bought sinner. Jesus, Jesus saved me. Well, that's kind of a weird response. I know. <laughs> but Jesus, Jesus changed me. And we just, we just live out who we are. The Christian life is simply taking God with you everywhere you go because he defines everything you are. And so the psalmist has no problem saying, I'm going to speak of him. I don't care who it's before. This is very Romans 1.16 kind of stuff. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. I don't care if you're Jew or you're Greek. It doesn't matter to me. It's the power of God. So I'm going to speak of him. And again, brothers and sisters, far too often we, we have the used vacuum salesman mentality. I'm kind of embarrassed about this. Why? We should not be. One theologian I was reading this week said, we actually should feel bad for those who don't know him. We don't feel guilty because they don't like us. We just say, oh, I wish you knew God because he is so worthy. 
and you desperately need him just like all people need him. So here the psalmist, he trusts, he hopes, and he says, I'm going to keep, I'm going to walk. I'm going to speak of you because you've changed everything. He goes on. There's a few more here. He goes in verse 47. I will delight, or I find my delight in your commandments. Here we see the word of God is delighted in. You see, trust and hope leads to delight. That's where I call it a well-duh moment in scripture. Like, duh. Like, don't you just put it together? You trust in him, you hope in him, and that's exactly what you delight in. Like, I was reading last night, if you're a Patriots fan, sorry for the rest of you, I'm not a Patriots fan, but they have gone to the AFC or NFC championship for the last like seven years in a row. I mean, you can't argue with, they're pretty good. You're like, I'm a Ravens fan. Sorry. Uh, Doesn't matter. Right. You're just like, yeah, well, reality is they're pretty good. It's one of those well duh moments. Don't argue with it. Here he says, I delight in you because I trust in you and I hope in you and you're abundantly good. So I delight in you. I find great satisfaction in you. Delight is a term of the affections. It's what causes you to just like get happy inside for, I know that's a corny phrase, but it's just like, you're like, man, yes, God is awesome. God is good. And I delight in him because apart from him, I'm a mess. Apart from him, life is a mess. And so I delight in my God. I mean, we delight in a lot of things. You get a new car and you delight in that car until it no longer is new. You delight in getting a new home. You know what's kind of funny in America? We have starter homes. And then we have whatever's next. It's like, like your house isn't good enough. It's just the starter. And then, you know, the meaning you've got just, but you were happy with the starter when you bought it, but now it's the starter. And then you're going to go to the next one because that'll make you happy. Now, I'm not picking on financial investments. There's great wisdom in that, even with your homes. But it's just how, how we think. Or maybe we go back to the issue of health. I really trust in being healthy, and I'm really happy when I'm healthy till I'm not. Right? It's what I, what I delight in. And here we see that he goes, I trust in you. I hope in you. And oh, then God, I just, I delight in you. And I love the end of that verse. It actually happens twice, which I love. I was writing on this this week and just confronted with how often do I just confess to God, I love you. Not in some mushy, gushy way, but like, God, I love your word. This, this is, this rocks. This is awesome. I love it. God, I love you. Apart from you, I am nothing. Like if we don't have those responses to God, there's something wrong with our faith. Because you see, your faith will affect your emotions. It always does. Because everything we do in life has emotion attached to it. If you can totally separate your emotions from your faith, there's something wrong with your faith. Because at some level, you should have responses of, God, I love you. Now that we're all different emotionally, those responses will be different. All right. So some of you are like, oh man, Pastor Justin, you're just crazy. I'm just introverted. I don't, I don't want anybody looking at me. I'm just kind of like, okay, that's fine. That's great that God made you that way, but you will have responses to God. And here the psalmist says, I delight in you and I love you. So for us, if there's a lack of delight, well, then guess what? 
there's a lack of trust. There's a lack of hope. Isn't this how it works human, human to human? Like in, your, in a marriage relationship, when there's trust and hope in, the, in that marriage, there's delight. You take out the trust, you take out the hope, mm, delight's gone. How it is with God. When you trust him, when you delight in him, or when you trust in him, when you hope in him, there's delight in him. And so we must trust him and hope in him. And then look at how he finishes. He's, I'm gonna delight in your commandments. I love them. And then the last I will, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Here we see the word of God is honored. The word of God is honored. This, is, this idea of lifting my hands is fairly abused today. All right, I'm just gonna say it. And you'll, I, I raise my hands in worship, so don't be like, oh yeah, Pastor Justin's against that. I'm not. But I, we need to talk about this because it actually only shows up a couple times in the entire Bible. This is one of them. All right, if you, if you actually went to a, most evangelical churches today in America, you'd think raising hands is everywhere in scripture. It's not. It's here. And let's look at what he does because it's awesome. He says, I'm gonna raise my hands toward the awesome band up front. No. The awesome trumpeter who's doing his thing before the ark. Not happening. I raise my hands towards your commands, which I love. Here we see the word is worshiped. The word is worshiped because it reveals God. So he's being driven by truth. Truth is driving the train, if you will. He's like, I want to know God. And when I know him, oh, I raise my hands as an act of worship and honor to that God. Raising one's hands in the ancient Near East culture was not something you do at a concert. It was something that when you went into the presence of a sovereign ruler, you raised your hands as an act of homage. And if they were really great, you fell on your face with your hands up. Because they were that worthy. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, I'm going to raise my hands as an act of devotion and reverence to the God of this book. To the command, actually towards the commands of the God of this book. Because they're that worthy. This is not some subjective emotionalism going on. This isn't like the band strums and you throw your hands in the air. This is... There is a God who's revealed himself. And when he does that, there are times where I just put my hands up and say, God, you are awesome in every way. And I don't know what else to do, but to stand here with my hands in the air, which feels kind of stupid because you're great. This is the aim and the content that drives biblical worship. Biblical worship is driven by truth. It's a proclamation of truth. When we sing songs, we're proclaiming truth. And every time a song is sung here or anywhere else that's not full of truth, you should do something about it. You should come to your elders and say, I don't think that's true. Can we talk about it? I'm serious. Because we're proclaiming truth. Or you're listening to the radio and it's not true, turn it off. And say, that's not true, it's garbage. It's a response to truth. Not, a, not, ooh, man, they, they just know how to nail it. It's actually interesting. You go back in church history and they wouldn't listen to music until they read the lyrics. 
because they didn't want to be swayed by how it sounded. They wanted to know the truth existed. That's a good diet thing for us today. Read and say, wow, who that reveals God. That's some good stuff. And then go, ooh, I don't like the music. Well, it reveals God. So I'm going to listen to it. Don't go the other way, people. With, ooh, well, I don't know what they just said, but they sounded good. That is not the message of scripture. I'm going to lift my hands towards your commands, which I love. Truth drives all biblical worship. All of it is driven by truth. And there's a lot of so-called worship today that's not based in truth. And we need to be discerning Christians and say, you know what? We understand that it is an act of homage and reverence to our God. And we want to know him. We want to worship him, but we want to do it in truth. Remember Jesus, we worship in what? Yeah, we like the spirit part today. But guess what? The spirit will never work apart from truth. Ever. Ever. And anytime you think the spirit's working and there's no truth, it ain't the spirit from God. So we need to have the spirit of God in line with the truth of the word of God and say, whoa, wow, I can respond to that because of who God is. So we respond, brothers and sisters, to who he is. And then he says, I'm going I'm to meditate on that truth. Remember the word meditation? To think deep and often. He just says, oh God, when you reveal who you are, oh, I throw my hands up and I think deeply about you. I think often about you. And so we should raise our hands as an act of worship. We see it here in scripture, but it is an act of worship to the revealed truth of God. It's not emotionally driven. It's not musically driven. It actually would be just as biblical for you to throw your hands up while I'm preaching and say, praise God. Now I start getting crazy and people start, you know, getting weirded out by that. Okay. But according to the text of scripture, that would be an appropriate response that we just say, wow, God is awesome. And I don't know what else to do, but to throw my hands up and say, God is great. God is good. And he's the one I love. So God reveals himself through the word and we know him and we delight in him through the word. It is the command that we trust and we hope in. And then it changes our lives with these I will statements. I'm going to keep, I'm going to walk. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to speak of you. I'm going to delight in you. I love you. I'm going to lift my hands towards you and I will meditate on you. And all of that goes back to, I have hope in you. I trust you. When everything else in this world is falling, when life is super insecure, I can have hope and trust in you. When I don't know why you're doing what you're doing, God. When I wish you would change my circumstances or change my family or change my children or affect my work environment, I hope in you, I trust in you, and I can live for you. There are so many pseudo saviors today. Fake false saviors. And I don't mean people that get on TBN. I mean, just in your own heart. I mean, just what's inside of you. The pseudo savior complex that this is hope. This is trustworthy. And it's not. Oh, that we would be a church that trusts God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And then we'll be a church who lives for him.
because we're trusting and hoping in him. Because we will, when you trust in God, you will live for that God. So let's pray together. Father, we ask you today to do your word. Would you help us to conform to you? Thank you for your word. It is like rain that falls from heaven and it promises to do its work. So God, do your work even in our hearts today, we pray. Help us to trust you and to live for you. And in Christ's name, amen.